0: Welcome to Open Out, a podcast series about the nitty-gritty of living interculturally. It's the second week of May as I'm writing this, and we are just now starting to reopen our cities and towns, and at some point we'll be opening our faith communities. When we do open them, our faith communities, who do we want to open them to? Everyone? Or just those who are more like us? It's a choice, and and the choice is ours. This series grew out of research funded by the United Church Foundation, combined with the lived experience of those who have actually walked the walk, including the folk at Knox Winnipeg, where I served for 14 years, a church that grew into one of the most culturally diverse churches in North America. Today's episode, Mindlessness, Mindfulness, and Moonwalking Bears, is the second in our exploration of hidden or unconscious bias. Now, if you've caught some of the earlier episodes, you'll know that we've been traveling in stages, starting with simple curiosity and then seriously considering being intentionally open. Now we move into exploring what individuals and communities who are committed to opening need so that they can open themselves with courage and conviction and perhaps a bit of gracefulness. Before we begin, if you haven't seen it yet, there's a video I'd like you to watch. It's from Britain, and it's about, well, bicycle safety. If you can, go to Google or YouTube and and search for test your awareness, do the test, and then do the test. Well, not when you're driving, when it's safe. We humans are a bit awed, aren't we? I mean, we mean well, most of us. Our intent is almost always to do good. Why does it so often go wonky then? During COVID, most of us have been so impressed by and so grateful to our frontline medical practitioners. They've literally been risking their lives for us. And yet even these remarkable humans are still, well, human. And so even there, things go wonky. Here's some of the stuff I came across in the research. Non-white patients receive fewer kidney transplants than white people, and fewer cardio treatments if they have heart problems. When calling to get a doctor's appointment, if the one doing the booking suspects that you are poor, you are significantly less likely to get your appointment. And in almost every measurable area, transgendered people are less likely to receive the same level of treatment as those who are not transgendered. Why, It's good people. But of course, it's not just in medicine, is it? In Canada, 30% of the male inmates in prison are Indigenous. And yet only 5% of the general population is Indigenous. What's that about? Is it really that somehow Indigenous people are innately more criminal? Of course not. We know that. Or or is it perhaps because they are disproportionately disadvantaged and so are more likely to be drawn to crime? Well, poverty, housing, employment, these can all be factors. But that still doesn't explain the numbers. And though we do have racist cops and likely racist judges, most of those incarcerated were probably sentenced by fair-minded humans. At least trying to be fair. Could there be something else going on here? It's no secret that the U.S. is also jailing vast numbers of racialized males. In fact, they have one of the highest incarceration rates in the world. Black males are jailed at more than five times the rate of white males. As I was doing this research, I came across this odd finding. When researchers compared the sentences for black males jailed for serious crime, they found that the darker the skin, the thicker the lips, and the wider the nose— then the longer the sentence, and the more likely the person is to receive the death penalty. That's not simply racism. Bigots aren't that selective. They're not that sophisticated. So something else must be contributing to this terrible injustice. Let's be clear. Freud said sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Sometimes what appears to be racism is just that. Racism. Pure and simple, overt, chosen, destructive and it needs to be called out as such. But I think a far more prevalent problem is prejudice based on unconscious bias. We started our journey into implicit bias in last week's episode by looking at a cluster of biases. Affinity bias, and that's a bias toward people we see as more like us, and accent bias, And that is our tendency to believe people more readily if they have the same accent as us, and to be more distrustful of information spoken by an otherwise accented speaker. Outgroup homogeneity bias is our inclination to think of members of other groups as sort of the same, but to make room for individual diversity among our own group. In group bias is the implicit belief that your group is best and others are somehow inferior. This in-group bias can result in othering, allowing us to depersonalize them so we can justify having our negative thoughts about them. When I started this research project, I had the mistaken notion that I'd be able to work at home. That's optimism bias, but we don't need to go there now. Nope, couldn't. Fortunately, I was able to get an office in the Theology Department of the University of Winnipeg, which is in a separate building near the main campus. Every day I went to the office, I saw this young woman sitting on the sidewalk, near the doors, panhandling. Over the weeks, we talked a bit. Her name, I learned, was Joanne. Curious about her story, I began to ask folk around the department if anyone knew anything about Joanne, the the woman panhandling at the corner, how long she'd been there, and, and so on. Heads shook, eyes glazed, and then turned away, And then one person said, oh, that's a woman. I guess I saw somebody there, but I never noticed if it was male or female. It. Othering. In-group bias. You don't even see the person as a person. Well, then, for a few weeks, I strutted around thinking just how snobby and biased they were. Not like me. I'm an intercultural researcher. I even knew her name. And then one day, I was parking my car again in front of the theology building. I was just fumbling to get some cash to put in the meter, and I saw Joanne walking down the street toward me. She gave me a big smile and said, Oh, Bill, be careful. You just dropped some money. I dropped a $20 bill. That's like a day's work of panhandling. I tried to cover my surprise. Maybe my shock. my, My own bias. I guess I'd assume that someone panhandling, maybe homeless, desperately needing cash, would have just gone over and picked it up and said she told me about it. It was my own bias. So much for my moral superiority. We all have bias. It's inside us. Remember last week we talked about the 11 million pieces of information coming at us each second and our brains only being able to process about 40? And so to cope with that, we automatically engage in selective attention, reducing the number to something more manageable. This is where that bicycle ad comes in. Did you try it? Well, if not, and, and if you're free, give it a go. I'll put on one of those wee musical interlude things so you can sneak off and give it a try if you want to. So, did you try it? Weirdly. Eh? Okay, spoiler alert. I'm going to explain what happens now. In the video, you see a bunch of young people throwing a basketball, and you're invited to count the number of times they throw the basketball between them. There's also a bear moonwalking through the group. But for some reason, you don't see the dancing bear. Some of you might recognize this as a remake of the famous Simons and Chabris study called Selective Attention Test except their video had a gorilla walking rather than a bear dancing. Now, once you know about the bear or gorilla, you cannot not see it. But the first time, most people don't. I I didn't. The first time I saw it, I was amazed. How could we not see it? It's right there. It's called selective attention. That's how our brains work. It is recurrent mindlessness a condition I am highly familiar with. We are wired to be selectively attentive, to have automatic perception, to make snap judgments. There's a bit more on the mechanics of how the brain does this in part one of this series. For the clusters we're looking at today, the first group includes two very similar biases, the actor-observer bias and the fundamental attribution error. You can see that the academics name these things. They're always a mouthful to try to speak. Okay, first, actor-observer bias. This is our instinct to judge others differently than we judge ourselves, and to judge other groups differently than we judge our group. For example, say we're driving and we see somebody speeding, and they run a stop sign or or even a red light, and, and then we think to ourselves, they're crazy, lunatic, bad driver or words we can't say in a PG podcast. It doesn't come to our mind that perhaps they're rushing someone to the hospital, or perhaps that they're very late for something very important. However, if we are rushing someone we love to the hospital, or are very late for something very, very important, and we speed or don't quite stop at the stop sign, we believe it's okay. We're doing this because we're in such a tight spot. You know, traffic is light. It'll be okay. It's a bit like that old joke. Anyone who drives slower than you on a two-lane highway is an idiot. Anyone who drives faster than you is a reckless jerk. We are the norm by which we judge others. So if someone is a newcomer and they're doing something we wouldn't do or doing it differently, what happens? How do we interpret what they're doing? How do we attribute meaning to their actions? Well, wrongly, likely, at least initially. That's the insight of fundamental attribution error. This is our tendency, when we see others behaving a certain way, to attribute it to a trait of the person. We attribute it to a personal characteristic. They're reckless. They're an idiot driver. Or they're doing something else, and we attribute it to a personal characteristic. Oh, oh, they're mean, or or they're self-centered, or oh, she is so generous. And we tend to ignore the circumstances. When you ask your partner to pick up some tofu on the way home and she or he stops and buys a bunch of other veggies at the market but forgets the tofu, you might think to yourself something like, oh, he is so forgetful or she never listens to me or he is so selfish, she only cares about the veggies she likes or maybe even, you know, he's always been anti-tofu. But if your partner asks you to pick up the dry cleaning on the way home, and you arrive home all proud and you're laden with goodies from the market, eh, but not the dry cleaning. Well, that's because you were tight for time. Or maybe they closed early, or or you had such a busy day. Too much on your mind. Now, group attribution error is similar. That's our tendency to believe that the characteristics of individual group members are reflective of the group as a whole. Irish are stubborn. Scots are cheap. These are stereotypes, and we reinforce these when we see individuals acting in ways that reflect that stereotype. But by engaging our selective attention, we fail to note when members of the group are not acting that way. It's easier for our minds to do this. It doesn't give us so much to have to think about. This really is that general stereotyping that we're probably all familiar with and likely all of us engage in. Although many of us try hard to get rid of this kind of thinking, it persists. Maybe we should consider moving away from total abstinence, the idea that we could somehow stop all stereotyping, and move toward harm reduction. Be mindful in our stereotyping, aware that we are engaging in mental shortcuts that could be quite wrong, mindful that they can cause harm. If we're aware that something we are thinking is actually a stereotype, we are far less likely for it to influence us without our knowing. We can be intentional in thinking about the stereotype. Is there a potential harm in it? Is it limiting? Is it fair? (laughs) The next cluster includes both false consensus bias and projection bias. False consensus bias is the tendency for your brain, my brain, to overestimate just how much your thoughts, your feelings, your, your beliefs and values are, are normal or typical. How much you assume that other people think pretty much the same way you do. And this can lead you to think there is a consensus where there may not be one. For some reason, I really love this. One of my favorite studies on this was done at a university where they had advertised for students to participate. When they showed up, they told them it involved walking around campus wearing a sandwich board. The students at that point could either opt in or opt out. And afterwards, they asked both groups to fill out a survey. One of the questions asked them to estimate what percentage of their classmates they think would be likely to participate in this study so wear a sandwich board. Those who agreed to wear one thought the vast majority of their classmates would agree as well. Those who refused thought the vast majority of their classmates would refuse as well. Same classmates. Well, how could these help our brains? Thinking back to our old saber-toothed tiger days, there's a danger in being alone, cut off from the tribe, the collective. The false consensus mechanism helps us feel that we are part of a majority, which is comforting, less risky. You can see this among those who watch CNN and those who watch Fox, those who support Trump and those who think that he is a clear and present danger. Our social media silos reinforce this, Twitter, Facebook. We either don't encounter people who think differently, or when we do, we other them. We can even use offensive terms like libtard or redneck. That's because when the false consensus bias is operating, if people are confronted with evidence that consensus does not exist, that not everyone thinks like them, then they tend to assume that those who do not agree are somehow defective. Why? It's easier for our brain to recall similarities than differences projection bias is almost exactly the same. This is the tendency to overestimate the degree to which other people think or feel or behave like us. Last week I told that story about being on a train looking out on the Canadian prairies one cold January just at dawn and I thought it was so beautiful and the guy standing beside me he thought it was well the other side of hell. Another time I encountered this was when I was working for the region, helping congregations through change processes. One church was considering replacing their pews with flexible seating. I found myself assuming others would think like me, that except for the historical or traditional symbolic value of the pews, flexible seating would be much better. Instead, in an open meeting, people began offering ideas I'd never thought of. One person said pews being screwed to the floor are much easier for people with mobility issues. Another person said far more comfortable for obese people. And a young mom said, oh, much better for families with babies. You can just lie the child on the pew beside you and they can sleep. There was no consensus, except in my mind, and I had projected that onto the group assuming they would think like me. Okay, we've still got time for a few more. Confirmation bias is the tendency to search for information that confirms what we already believe or to interpret new information in such a way that it will confirm what we believe. Say, for example, a manager believes that Indigenous people are, well, more unreliable. He or she may treat that worker differently, do more micromanaging, Be less tolerant for lateness or for absence. Kind of assume a more suspicious tone. And then how might that worker respond? Well, perhaps with frustration for not being treated like the other workers, or with lower motivation, decreased commitment. Or maybe with anxiety, which of course increases errors. And all of this, of course, further confirms the manager's existing bias. Okay, quickly one more i i suspect you might recognize this it's it's the just world hypothesis this is the tendency to believe that the universe is or at least should be fundamentally fair so if something negative happens to a person or group they're likely to have done something to deserve it bad things don't or at least shouldn't happen to good people now this doesn't just play out in that childish it's not fair kind of way it can be more subtle i remember once we were working with a, a group of people tied in with real estate and so forth. We were trying to develop a a model of interest-free housing for newcomers. And in that process, we were interviewing refugees. An older Somali woman came in, no teeth, living in government housing. Then, through an interpreter, she started asking the most profound questions about real estate law in Canada. This organizing group that was doing the interviewing, most of them were affluent white professionals. Some of them were clearly taken aback. She turned to them and said, Oh, I see your surprise. You did not realize that back home I was a gold merchant. And I owned not only a villa in Mogadishu, but two vacation homes, three Mercedes. Afterwards, clearly these team members were jarred. This shouldn't happen, they felt, to someone like them. Smart? Rich? A refugee? Not fair. (laughs) So, what do we do with these biases? Earlier I suggested that instead of seeking abstinence, where our goal would be to eradicate all bias from our minds, since they seem to be part of how our brain operates, maybe our goal should be something closer to harm reduction, where we can be intentional about keeping, tweaking, or dismissing them. Let's use what's called the other race effect as an example. Now, researchers have known for decades that as humans, we're much better at recognizing faces of our own race than other races. This crosses all races. I remember early in my time at Knox, I was chatting with someone who had come as a refugee from East Africa. We were talking about someone in the church, and he had her confused with another person. And then he said, Oh, sorry, all you white people look kind of the same to me. (laughs) I almost chuckled, thinking he was making a joke. Luckily, I held back. He, he wasn't. It seems universal. Babies as young as three months have been shown to have a preference for faces of the same race. Three months. It's linked to that pattern recognition process, the incessant categorization that our brains do to help us along the way. We categorize everything, fruits, animals, trees, and other humans. Our brains love to categorize the way the count on Sesame Street loves to count. If we accept this as a given in an intercultural setting, we can destigmatize it, create an environment in which we accept it as part of being human, and instead of shaming others or feeling guilty ourselves, simply create ways to work around it. It's what our brains do. Let's save our guilt for the stuff we really should feel guilty about. The brain, by the way, doesn't always get the categories right. I remember a friend of mine who who was also a minister told me about when his family were returning from many years working in the Caribbean. They'd been the only white family in the church, really the only white family in that village. And so his young daughter, who was blonde and white as can be, had grown up in an entirely black culture. One night, just before they were leaving, she was upset. He sat with her and asked her what was wrong. She was afraid, she said, that the kids in her new school in Canada might not accept her, because they were white and she was... He gently put his arm around her and said, Honey, we need to chat. The act of stereotyping is universal. Everybody does it. But the content of the stereotypes is culturally specific and generated, so it can be changed. Throughout the world, humans tend to sort other humans, categorize them. In North America, it can be due to race. In much of South Asia, it could be sorting according to caste. My family was from Northern Ireland. And of course, we sorted according to religion. We can change the content of the sorting, the categories, but not likely the tendency to sort. Biases can change, but how? there are some suggestions from the research that can help. First, slow down. Remember, biases and stereotypes are part of the brain's efforts to rapidly categorize and quickly identify potential dangers. Biases increase in strength the more quickly we are acting, the more reactive we are. Secondly, bring them to light. This is so important. Bring them out of the background, out of the unconscious, and then consciously look at them. Some will simply dissolve at that point. Height bias, as we talked about, disappears almost as soon as we become conscious of it. Third, I think we could call it compassionate recognition. As we become aware of a bias, especially ones that might have been hurtful to ourselves or, or to others, it really helps if we can choose compassion. With kindness towards yourself and towards others, recognize that our brains make mistakes without us realizing it. Biases are part of how our brains function. We can remind ourselves that everyone has them, so you're not unique. They are unconscious and changeable. Feeling some sadness? some remorse for something we said or did when we were unaware of how this bias was affecting us, well, that's that's fine, and, and it's appropriate, and, and we should do something with that. Respond. But, well, trying to shame or scold that part of us won't help. Discovering a bias inside us is like meeting a part of ourselves we hadn't known before. We can just start by saying, hello, I see that's what you've been doing. You've been trying to help me, to protect me. I appreciate that, but I'm okay now. I won't need you to do that anymore. We can offer a bit of grace also to others as they engage in learning to navigate differently, to to find different routes and reducing the harm biases can do in their life. This is all a part of mindfulness, of that bringing a bias to light and offering compassion to ourselves and to others when we see how a bias has been operating. Also, it helps if we choose to be a learner. Nobody is an expert in this stuff. And no matter how long you've been engaged in relationships across cultural boundaries, no matter how extensive or intensive your experience or your research is, you're still going to make mistakes. We do that. We get tripped up by some unrecognized implicit bias inside of us. We can learn. We are on the the journey now. We are just learning bit by bit, step by step. And let's keep learning. As we try to deal with biases in our relationships, one of the things that's recommended that we can do, and it makes a lot of sense, is to choose intentional graciousness. Micro-affirmations. These are just tiny acts of kindness, gestures, gazes, both in private and public, that can convey compassion, appreciation, and respect for the other person. Just, these are just wee ways to let them know that you believe in them, that you value them. Research has shown that these micro-affirmations impact both the sender and the receiver. You don't need to feel gracious or kind or generous. This is really about creating new pathways in your brain. And so by doing this, eventually our emotions will align with that. Next week, we'll begin a two-part series looking at the dimensions of culture, some of the key differences in how people from differing cultures think and feel, how they act and react. You know, in the end... It's probably that selective attention mechanism that makes it possible for us to enter a world of relationships with folk who think and act and even feel differently than us. But it's that same selective attention that gets in the way, causes us to misread, misinterpret, stumble. I hope these podcasts can help you and your brain along your journey. I know the research has helped my brain and me get along much better now. There are many online resources on implicit or unconscious bias. I have drawn in particular from material by Cook Ross Incorporated. Theme music is by Bruce Harding. You can link to all of the episodes at openout.ca or check out our Facebook page. I am grateful to the United Church Foundation as well as the United Church's Publishing House and their Intercultural Ministries for support. Next week we'll begin our journey into the specifics of cultural differences. Our first stop, individualism and collectivism. Until then, let's keep learning.